Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hi, my name is Joy Rios and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. We are starting a new episode in a new season and very excited to speak with our new guest today. So I would love to learn more from you, Lauren, if you could please take a moment to introduce yourself and tell our audience a little bit about your place within the healthcare and health IT ecosystem. Great. Thank you, Joy. My name is Lauren Kneiser. I am a senior director at Audacious Inquiry which recently was acquired. So we're now proud to be a point-click care company as well. I lead our emergency preparedness and response technology portfolio within the company, which is a really interesting intersection um, looking at how our core business in health IT can be brought to bear to solve complex challenges in disaster response. Okay, so that must be a big job because lately there's been a lot of disasters. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I actually joined the company just weeks before the pandemic onset. And so I certainly was not anticipating the pace of the environment that I walked into. But even, you know, outside of the pandemic, we're definitely experiencing more hurricanes, more wildfires every single year. So it's been nonstop for, you know, two and a half years and longer. And yes, definitely a big job. So, okay, I have a background in in sustainability and kind of focusing on climate change. And so, and it's been an ongoing conversation for me for a while, right? Uh, Probably 15 years, it's been in my hemisphere of what's something that I think about. What kind of response are we talking about and how quickly do people need to get set up? I'd like to kind of paint a picture for people for like, okay, a disaster happens if it's a wildfire, for example. What goes into responding to that? Yeah, that is a great question. We tend to focus on these large catastrophes, especially after COVID-19, right? That's a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. But the way that I think about disasters is it's really just any disruption that overwhelms the routine healthcare infrastructure. And that in some cases can be a really small incident like a bus crash or maybe a handful of really high acuity but highly specialized patients like 
burn patients where the infrastructure is slim, maybe not well distributed across the population, and then can range obviously all the way up to something that's much more widespread like a hurricane or a wildfire, and then even further into a global pandemic. The way that we like to think about it is, you know, how can we mature our routine healthcare systems in our routine technology to be able to accommodate any one of those different scenarios? Yeah, so I imagine there's not one size fits all for any kind of a a solution. It's probably a lot of different solutions. So what are some of the things that would, like technology in particular, that supports somebody that is outside of their normal routine? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things um, that we focus on. So number one is coordination of care across different care environments. We obviously need that for routine health care when people are transitioning from primary care to specialty care to acute care to post-acute care. And then we need it to an even greater extent in disaster response when people are displaced from their homes and potentially seeking care hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from their routine healthcare infrastructure and also maybe seeking care in non-routine healthcare settings like shelters or alternate care sites that sort of spring up as additional surge capacity during these incidents. So continuity of care across different healthcare environments is extremely important. And then another thing that we focus on is the exchange of information and data across all of those different facilities and different providers throughout the healthcare continuum. And this can take many forms. It can look like just alerts to say, hey, your patient joy that you normally see on a routine basis for whatever condition has showed up in an emergency department three states away. Maybe you want to reach out to her and see what's going on and see if you can, you know, keep continuity of care from what you had been providing before. It can also take the form of clinical documentation. I think most people are aware that it can be very challenging to get all of your healthcare records in one place. And it can be very routine setting. Even in a routine (laughs) setting, exactly. Yeah. And it's even more challenging to do that in the midst of a disaster when infrastructure is interrupted. People, like I said, have been displaced. Providers have been displaced. And so, you know, we think about alerts, we think about clinical documents, and then we also think about data related to healthcare resources. In a disaster, when hospitals might be closed or skilled nursing facilities may have evacuated, we're not normally working with the same amount of capacity that we have every single day. And so it's really, really important that we know where open beds are and we know how many ventilators we have and we know you know, what facilities have enough supplies and which ones don't. So that's just another type of data and information that is critical to exchange across facilities. So does that mean that you guys have staff that are on the ground to go and actually help set that stuff up or does it end up being remote? How does that work? No, no, we typically don't have staff on the ground. I will say before coming to Audacious, my whole career is in disaster preparedness and response. Focus on public health and healthcare. It's not technology-based. And so in my former life, we certainly deployed people to the ground and would be assisting different healthcare facilities to collect and exchange these types of data. But now at Audacious, we very much work on the back end, supporting those people who are on the ground. And it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress nationally. I think there's a lot of exchange that's still happening 
via Excel spreadsheets and email or fax, the dreaded fax machine. But I think... Got like a paper form right here (laughs) from someone in my neighborhood. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But I think, you know, we have been maturing the health IT infrastructure for... 15 or more years. And hopefully we're still on that growth trajectory so that eventually we can stop having to deploy people to manually count how many individuals are in beds and put that into a spreadsheet and and email it elsewhere. But you must have a really interesting perspective having experienced that in person and being able to take that to the technology side. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Like, what was your experience in actually going there and being in these areas in person versus now being on the back on the back end? Yeah, I definitely think it's a, a benefit, right, to have experience and participated firsthand in trying to exchange information for public health and healthcare purposes during disaster response. And there's not enough synergy or marriage between emergency management, public health healthcare and health IT. And so for me to come from that background and come into health IT, where honestly, I knew almost nothing two and a half years ago, but to be bringing my perspective and my experience to a wealth of subject matter experts who really want to help in those situations, but don't necessarily know how, I think that's been really powerful. So can you tell me some examples of how like... I'm sure the conversations are really interesting. You're just like, (laughs) there's been so much going on. And of of course, I I don't know. I guess I'm curious to know what it is like in your, we're all working remotely, but in some of your meetings around like, how do you, are you guys working with first responders or helping to connect all of those dots? Like, how do you go from, we're just doing our job to now we have to be ready? Yeah, yeah, I can tell you very tactically some of the things that yeah. we are doing to assist. Our core business within the company is care coordination. We send ADT alerts. Um, we try to connect different healthcare providers to improve transitions of care and care continuity. And before I even joined Audacious, several years before I joined, actually, Hurricane Michael hit the state of Florida in 2018. And Florida is one of our longstanding partners. We work with the Agency for Healthcare Administration, or ACA, and we're their technical vendor supporting their health information exchange, um, FLHIE. And when Hurricane Michael came, ACA and we realized that we have this vast connectivity to hospitals in the state. Um, I think, you know, connectivity is somewhere around 98% today. I'm not sure what it was at that point in time. After Michael, a lot of patients were displaced. Their routine healthcare providers were not able to locate them. Um, This was true for dialysis patients. It was true for home health patients. You know, there were literally thousands of individuals that healthcare providers were trying to reconnect with in order to make sure that they had life-sustaining care. Like I said, Aka and we realized we had this, this large network and hey, we could look across our network to see if any of these people showed up in an emergency department or a hospital somewhere. And so I think it took some creative engineering at the time. We didn't actually have a tool or a process in place to do this, but they worked together really quickly in real time and searched this list of thousands of patients within the state and ended up finding 400 of them within the first hour and reconnecting them with their routine healthcare providers. And so now we actually have 
a tool in place and we have a process in place and we can do that in any of the states that we're a technical partner for, which today I think is maybe 15 or 16, 17 states. And we call it emergency census. And we actually deployed emergency census also during Hurricane Ida in Louisiana last year where we worked with a large dialysis organization who about three weeks after the storm's landfall still was not able to make contact with several of their patients. And we were able to find half of the people that they were looking for uh, within hours. Um, so that's one, one example of how we're leveraging our technology, our core business and our networks for disaster response use cases. Okay, but what happens when the power goes out? Like if it's based on technology, there's like in disasters that happens a lot. What do you do then? Oh, it does. And that is certainly a problem and a challenge. It is one that we work with all of our partners to make sure that they have a plan. A lot of them do, recognizing that healthcare is an essential infrastructure. The, their emergency management authorities and healthcare facilities have generators in place. You know, they've got contracts with entities like Verizon and other communication entities that can quickly bring the power back up. But it's certainly something that needs to be planned for in advance and really can cause a big problem if the power is out for a long time. And do you have any idea around like how prepared our healthcare system is? I mean, if you guys are working in 15 to 17 states and disasters are happening more often, people who live in those states maybe feel better. But what about people who don't live in those states? How prepared are we? For it's getting better. I will say it's getting better. So before coming to Audacious, one of the roles I had was within uh, health and human services within the federal government. I worked for an organization called ASPR, which is the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. And while I was there, ASPR was working with CMS to execute what we call the preparedness rule. It's got a nice big long name, but we call it the preparedness rule. And basically CMS mandated uh, different requirements of hospitals and other healthcare facilities to be prepared for disasters. It took, I think, eight years for that rule to actually be put in place. So it was a very long time coming. But since it was implemented, hospitals are now required to have an emergency plan, to have a communication plan, to help track their patients, their inpatients and their staff. We've seen in countless previous disasters where hospitals and other healthcare facilities kept their generator in the basement and then a hurricane would flood and the generator would be underwater and, and practically useless. And I think we're seeing a lot less of that over time as our regulatory requirements have improved, um, but also as more and more states and healthcare facilities are getting impacted by disasters because they're increasing year after year. And certainly COVID has been a, a game changer as well. Well, okay. So given your insight into the policy and regulation side of things, are there any that we should be keeping our eye out for in the future of like anything that's on the horizon as far as policy changes to support, you know, better preparedness? Actually, yes. So there is another notice of proposed rulemaking out right now from CMS. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it actually is all around sharing 
uh, hospital capacity data. <clears throat> and so you may have heard during COVID-19, hospitals have been required to report their open bed availability status, as well as, you know, a whole host of other data points to their state and federal governments. And this has been very, very challenging for the hospitals because there's not very good standards in place for the data sharing the requirements have shifted several times since the beginning of the pandemic. Some states have wanted to be an intermediary for going to the federal government. Others have not. And so now, you know, two plus years into the pandemic, CMS has this proposed rule out that essentially says, in addition to the current pandemic reporting requirements that you've already been doing for the last several years, we are also going to require reporting for future public health emergencies and disasters. And so the notice is asking for feedback on things like cost and burden to healthcare facilities are also asking for some feedback on how to standardize that reporting requirement. For me, who has witnessed this gap and this challenge in many disasters before COVID-19 and recognizes it as a problem well before COVID-19, uh, it's a really large regulatory step um, to be able to uh, streamline the way that we share capacity data and what we call situational awareness data and require it in a way that is actually manageable for hospitals and other healthcare facilities rather than imposing a requirement in the moment when they're already struggling with so many other things. Well, so if that means the proposed rule is going to be coming out likely in the summertime, so then there's time for comment. Like, would you recommend people, you know, spend some time reading that and then support submitting any sort of commentary? Because I'm sure that they have plenty of opinions or lessons oh, learned absolutely. from being in the space. Absolutely. I think the comments are actually due on June 17th. And so if you have not yet read the rule, uh, definitely it is time. Make time <laughs> to do that and send in, send in the comments. I know having been on the other side of the fence writing a rule, it's always really helpful to get the feedback because everybody wants to put rules in place that are helpful and not harmful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I would love to learn a little bit more actually about your journey, if you don't mind. It sounds like you've had an interesting, you know, professional career path. How did you get started? Was like working in healthcare or it looks like your, your master's in public health was a guiding light and kind of got you to where you are. But like, where did your journey begin? That is a great question. <laughs> so basically, <laughs> from the time I was a little girl, I thought I was going to be a doctor. You know, that was the path. It was the only path. It was the only thing I'd ever really considered. And then my junior, senior year of college, when everyone else was, you know, trying to figure out what med school they want to apply to and shadowing physicians, I kind of woke up and was like, you know, I don't really feel that this is my path. I didn't know what else I wanted to do. So I graduated college, uh, had no plan. My parents were very upset about it. <laughs> I was on this you know, career trajectory. I had finished all of my prereqs and I was supposed to go to med school. And I was selling my books back to the bookstore. And the woman behind the desk said, what are you doing after you graduate? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and she said... Uh, you know, my son did this really cool program called AmeriCorps. Maybe you could do that for a year while you figure it out. And I was like, that sounds great. I have no better plan. <laughs> so I looked at AmeriCorps. I ended up becoming what they call a VISTA, a volunteer in service to America. Um, I moved to California and worked in a school district for a year. 
um, doing early childhood intervention work. And I really liked it. I realized that I really enjoyed public health. At the time, I didn't know what public health was. I didn't even necessarily recognize that that's what I was doing. But I had a mentor there who said, you know, if you really like medicine and science and you really like public health work, you should consider epidemiology and you can, should consider going to get your master's degree. And I was like, that sounds cool. I've never heard of that. And so I went to the public library, started looking at public health schools and I was like, yeah, this sounds like something I want to do. I applied to schools. I got in, I went and started my master's degree. And at the same time, I had volunteered for American Red Cross through high school and college and into my master's program. And a mentor I had at Red Cross in Greater New York said, you know, if these are your interests, there's this guy I want you to meet. He works with kids, which you were doing in California, and he's into disaster response, and he's a physician, and I think it's right up your alley. And so I went and met this physician. His name's Erwin Redliner, and he runs the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University. Uh, I walked in with what I thought was an informational interview. I had baked him cookies and, you know, showed up this like blonde-haired Midwestern girl with cookies and, you know, walked out with a job. He was like, would you want to work here doing disaster research? And I said, that sounds amazing. I absolutely would. So I ended up working for NCDP full-time while I was doing my master's degree. I fell in love with the mission of, you know, disaster response. Uh, There was so much work to be done on the tail end of, you know, 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina. And I sort of never looked back. And over the next 12 years-ish, <laughs> I worked for a variety of different organizations in a variety of roles doing research, policy, education and training, operational response until I came to Audacious about two and a half years ago, making another big change into technology. That's fantastic. I, you know, we're really trying to focus on a couple impact areas. And one of them is, you know, supporting the next generation of women leaders and like offering paths for them to follow. Because I think to your point, a lot of times we don't realize that there's other jobs in healthcare. You think of nurse and doctor and that's it. Mm -hmm. And there's so many other ways that you can apply yourself to get involved and support the mission of helping people. And AmeriCorps, I know other people who've done AmeriCorps too. Would you recommend that for people who maybe don't necessarily know what they want to do with their life just yet? I would. I would, for sure. Um, It was such a rewarding experience for me. I will say it is a volunteer program. And so for some people, that's just impossible to do. You need an income and you know maybe don't have something to rely on. I personally, I worked while I volunteered and you're not really supposed to do that. But if you can you know make it work for your circumstances, I think it's just a really amazing program. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Well, if people want to connect with you, work with you, follow you, where would you recommend that they go? Come straight to me. I am happy to talk to anyone at any time. I can leave my email address accessible. It's lkniser, L-K-N-I-E-S-E-R at A-I-N-Q.com. And I'm more than happy to connect on any of the topics that we talked about um, and especially happy to connect with people who are looking for different career paths. Fantastic. Are you by any, are you LinkedIn and Twitter, any of that? Can we... Can we hear you there? I am. I'm definitely much more (laughs) active on LinkedIn. I do have an account on Twitter that my amazing communications and marketing department helps me maintain. I'm not 
amazing on social media, but I try really hard and you certainly can find me there. Okay, fantastic. Lauren, thank you so much. I have learned a lot and I'm really just like grateful for the work that you and Audacious are doing. It's very, very needed. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been very fun. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon.